We'll be reading from Mark 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff Ziegler. I am one of the pastors here. Um, and before we uh, consider this passage and all that it signifies together, would you please join with me again in prayer? Father, we, uh, we give you thanks that as we come together, we are coming together uh, in the reality of your grace, in the reality of your victory, in the reality of the hope that we have through Christ's resurrection. And Lord, I pray right now that as we consider this familiar passage, these familiar events, that you would open our eyes and our hearts, that you would help us to see these things more deeply, and that you'd help us to be changed by them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning I have just a simple goal. Um, uh, I, my desire is to convince you that life, when rightly understood, is a comedy. Now, don't misunderstand me. When I'm talking about comedy, I'm not talking about like Seinfeld or The Office, you know, like 30-minute sitcoms. I'm talking more in the sense that's kind of classically used, where there is a distinction that's sometimes made for stories and for plays that everything either is a tragedy or a comedy. Perhaps you remember this from like high school English class. Um, you know, for, for both of these, with, with, with comedy and tragedy, everything is, there's a mixture of emotions. So, so a tragedy can still have moments of great delight there can be times of laughter, but, but that's not the only thing that experiences, right? And then on the other hand, comedy can have real moments of, of sadness or anxiety or even kind of intense darkness. But the thing that differs tragedy from comedy has to do with what has the final word. Where does the story ultimately go? So, so a tragedy goes through moments of goodness, but in the very end, hope loses, sorrow wins. And if you know you're watching a tragedy, there's this sense of foreboding, this anticipation that the good things that might be at the beginning are not going to last. On the other hand, with comedy, if you know where the story is going, you know that the story ends with joy, that joy wins out in the end. And so throughout, even as things are really hard, there's this sense of anticipation, there's this sense of hope that you know however bad things are right now, it's going to be okay in the end. That's the difference between tragedy and comedy. Now, when we move from story to life, that also is a mixture, isn't it? Anyone who's lived for any length of time knows that 
that life is a combination of good things and bad things. That there are moments of beauty like this morning as we walk to church, and yet there's also moments of ugliness when we see people enduring disease. We can, we can see in people heroism that inspires us, and we can also see in people cruelty that appalls us. In life, we can have certain moments that our heart feels like it's just going to burst with joy, like when, when a newborn is, is born and we just, we can't even contain our emotion, and the other times that are so difficult and dark, like when a loved one dies, that our heart feels like it's going to break. There's a mixture. And the question I think we ask is, it's which one of these is, is ultimately more real? Which one of these has the final word? Is life ultimately a tragedy where there's these good moments, but in the end it's just going to end in sadness? Or is life a comedy? Now, if we move back a few decades ago, I think we would see a, maybe a slightly different answer to the question than many have today, because we were in an era of optimism. You know, remember if you lived like I did in the 80s and the 90s, the, the sense that there was progress, that everything was space age, it was expected that every generation would be better than the one before. But that's really not the mood of the day, is it? And, and for good reason. Perhaps you felt this too. I felt like over the last few years, there's been like this gigantic spotlight that is exposing everything that is ugly. It's like the underbelly, underbelly of our life has been lifted up and we see corruption everywhere in positions of authority, whether it's religious authorities or political authorities or celebrities. We see things that we would rather not see. We we are exposed more and more deeply to the realities of sexual abuse and, and racism. And, and it's become increasingly common, I think, for people to just start seeing through people. Like, you know, they might look good, but I don't know what their angle is. We, we become jaded and cynical. And, and really, actually, what starts happening is we start actually seeing through joy itself. We become suspicious of joy. So have you ever had a moment like this where you are experiencing, you feel like everything is going well, family's holding together, job is going well, it's beautiful, and a part of you just wonders, okay, when is this going to end? I know that another shoe is going to drop, that this is just temporary. You almost start feeling this sense of foreboding. You know that this goodness can't be real, and so you're waiting for things to get worse, and you start feeling anxiety. Have you ever felt that way? You're experiencing that sense that life ultimately is a tragedy. And that is the conclusion that I think our culture is coming to, that as, as the philosopher Hobbes said, that life is, is brutish, nasty, and short. That if you are not naive, if you actually look at, at life honestly and you recognize really the nature of suffering that's all around us, you'll realize that yes, there might be some high points, but life ends in sadness. It is a tragedy. And what I'm here to tell you this morning is that that isn't true. That life, when understood rightly, is a comedy. Now, to think about this a little bit further, I, I, I want to suggest to you that when we're asking this question about what life is, whether it's comedy or a tragedy, we're actually asking a question about God himself. 
Because if God is in control, and he is, then he is ultimately the one who determines our fate. And if we're asking about whether or not life is ultimately going to be good in the end or bad in the end, what we're really asking is, is God committed to our happiness or is God either apathetic to our happiness or actually against it? Is God for us or is God against us? So when we're walking outside after church and we are seeing the beauty of the world around us, are we able to say this is God smiling upon me, giving this gift because he loves to give good things? Can we take it in like that? Or do we actually have a voice in the back of our head that's saying, don't get too used to this. You're gonna need to be productive. This isn't the way that life really is. Get back to work. Is God for us or is God against us? When we have a culture that says life ultimately is tragedy, if you are honest about it, it is not ultimately going to be meaningful, what our culture is saying is no. God either doesn't care or he is against you. And what I want to say is that when we look at our passage and understand it rightly, we see the very opposite answer. So let's consider um, Mark chapter 16. It's it's a familiar, at least the events are familiar to probably all of us. My guess is this morning when Tom said he is risen, you didn't go, what? I mean, everyone who's here knows the story of Christ having risen from the dead. But perhaps you didn't recognize or didn't notice just how understated the way Mark tells this story. Anytime you could choose to go big, he stays small and simple. This is a contrast from the way sometimes stories are told. I was watching a drama this past week where clearly it was wanting us to feel the excitement of the moment. And I could tell that because whenever things were getting intense, you would have these close-ups on people's faces and you could see them either crying or feeling so much effort and the music was just building and it was kind of like saying, can't you feel the drama? This is epic. You're being told how to feel. Well, Mark does the very opposite. He, he keeps this whole story really low-key. And he does even more than that. He actually exposes all of the ugly bits, the parts that maybe someone who wants to romanticize the story would overlook. It's, it's true, actually, throughout the way that Mark tells the story. If, if you backed up, for example, and looked at how he describes the apostles— so remember, when Mark is writing this account, when he is kind of collecting all this information, this is a few decades after Jesus has risen, this is when these apostles are the esteemed leaders of the church, but do you notice how they are described throughout the Gospel of Mark? For, for two years, Jesus has been investing in them. He has been teaching them. He has been mentoring them. They are his closest friends. And yet what happens on Thursday night when the guards come and sees Jesus. Mark, in one sentence, summarizes it all. It says, and they all left him and ran away. All of them, every single one of his disciples, all of his friends in that moment left him and ran away. Now, Mark tells us that Peter at least tries to kind of regroup. Peter follows Jesus 
from a distance. He, he sees him and he kind of starts moving towards him. But the moment he gets too close, the moment that we have people talking to Peter and saying, do you know Jesus? Aren't you one of his? What does Peter do again and again? says, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Three times, Peter, Jesus' best friend, denies that he even knows Jesus. And then when we finally get to the point where Jesus has been brutally whipped, he has been beaten by the soldiers, and he is so exhausted that he can't even carry the cross beam to the cross. Are there any of his friends there to carry the cross for him, at least to say, let me help you in this moment, Jesus? No, they have to draft some, some stranger that Jesus has never met to help him in that moment. Jesus' friends have failed him completely. And Mark records every ugly detail. And so when we get to the, the night of Friday where Jesus has already died and his body is just hanging on the cross, there are no apostles to be found anywhere near. There are just these three women we're told of, two women by the name of Mary and one woman by the name of Salome. And, and those three women who were there watching, looking as Jesus' body was taken down from the cross, they appear once again in the beginning of our story this morning. But even here, we see devotion, right? They are, they are intense to leave, to go, to anoint the body of Jesus. They, they are still devoted to Jesus, but what we don't see is faith. Here's what I mean. Um, see if you hear a pattern. When Jesus was teaching, he kept on saying some similar things again and again. So, so in chapter 8, it says, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That's what he says in chapter 8. Another chapter, chapter 9, it says, Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. One chapter later, what does Jesus say? It says, while they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, Jesus tells them, see, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Again and again, Jesus says the same thing to his followers. I am going to die, but after three days, I will rise. So what do we see as our story begins? We see these three women, and do any of them say, hey, it's the third day. Let's go see if Jesus has risen. No, they don't. They say, let's get some, some, some spices and some perfumes to anoint Jesus' dead body. Jesus has said, death will not be the end, sorrow will not be the end, joy will come after sorrow, and these women, as they are walking to the tomb, have concluded, no, only sorrow is true. So we see them walking to the tomb. It's early in the morning, the sun is just beginning to rise, and, and I love how Mark includes the detail that shows just kind of how confused they are. They are kind of walking together, still probably sleepless, exhausted, and it occurs to them where they're almost there, wait a second, how in the world are we even going to get into the tomb to anoint the body? Because the stone is really heavy and we can't move it. But even as that question occurs to them, they look and they notice to their surprise that the stone has already been removed from the tomb. And so they walk 
probably rapidly, confusedly, they duck their head under to get inside the tomb, and when they step in, everything in their lives suddenly turns upside down. Have you ever had it where, where your expectations and what you're seeing are so far apart from each other that your brain can't even make sense of it? I remember one time when I was uh, young in school, I saw my school teacher in a grocery store. <laughs> and at first, I didn't understand why this stranger was saying hi to me. Because the teacher doesn't go in a grocery store. They, you know, they live at school, at least to my understanding. My brain could not figure out the gap between my expectations and reality. Sometimes uh, when uh, school-age children are adopted by parents, one of the real challenges is that they are so accustomed to things being uncertain, untrustworthy, life being hard, that when life is safe, when they're experiencing love, they can't even recognize it because they're so focused on looking for danger. There's a gap between what they are actually seeing and what they are expecting, and they can't put the two together. I, I think that's what's happening with these women as they step into the tomb. They, they, they cannot process what they are seeing. We're told that they see a, a young man in white robes. And, and of course, what's being described here is an angel. In fact, Matthew, when he's telling the same story, explicitly calls that. But, but Mark, again, doesn't want to say anything more. He's, he's keeping things from the perspective of these women. And with these women, all they understand is that in a place where only dead people are supposed to be, there's this somewhat creepy living guy sitting there, and the dead person who's supposed to be there isn't there. And it says, somewhat understatedly, and they were alarmed. <laughs> uh, of course they were alarmed. And, and I love, you know, the, the, the interaction. What does, what does the, the angel say, the young man say? Do not be alarmed. I, I feel like this must be like standard angel protocol because it seems like every single time you have angels, that's what they say, and it never works. <laughs> and, and it doesn't work here either. The, the women are just so flooded. They cannot understand what they're seeing. It seems like everything the angel is saying, because he is saying the best news ever, and it just seems like they can't process it. And you can tell that they're not processing because he gives them one really simple instruction. Tell the disciples to meet Jesus. Go tell the disciples. And how does our story end? And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, we know that's not where the story eventually ends. But, but Mark is wanting us to see how unimpressive in some ways this story is. He, do you see how, how understated he keeps this? You know, if this were Hollywood, there would have been special effects. There would have been building music. The, the director would have said, let's make the angel a little bit brighter. If, if it were a fairy tale, you would have had this moment where the women suddenly are filled with joy and there's this happily ever after moment, but neither of these happen. Mark doesn't go there, and there's a simple reason. Because Mark wants to tell us exactly what happened. Because he is telling us simply what happens 
in our world. Not, not the world of fairy tales, not the world of Hollywood, but, but this world. He's wanting us to know that it's in, in this world, a world where people sometimes don't listen well, even when someone says something important like, in three days I will rise. A world where a person can betray his best friend in the moment of his greatest need. A world where people can be so overcome by grief that a detail like a heavy stone doesn't even occur to them until it seems too late. A world where, where women can see an angel and hear the most amazing news they've ever been told and yet be so afraid of life, so utterly unwilling to trust in the reality of joy that they go away afraid, unwilling to speak to anyone about it. It's that world that's being spoken of here. And here's why that's important, because if that's the world, if that's our world that this is taking place, then it is also our world where the angel says to them, do not be alarmed, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. It's, it's an our world, our geography, a time in, in this existence that this tomb where Jesus was laid was now discovered to be empty. It's in this world, the world that we live, are, are messy and complicated and yet sometimes beautiful lives that Jesus, who was dead, was raised by his Father. And, and what that means, and this is where Mark is wanting us to, to go, what that means is that God is for us. To understand that connection, let me say one other detail that's important to understand. When we are talking about what happened on Good Friday, when we're talking about the events of the cross, it's important for us to understand that when Jesus went to his death, he didn't just do that on his own for himself. He went to the cross as our representative. Scripture teaches that whenever someone places their faith in Jesus, anytime, even if, even if it were today that you were to say, you know what, I, I'm tired of living on my own. I surrender my ego. I entrust myself to you, Jesus. Whenever that happens, for whomever that happens, what in that moment is true is Jesus has become our representative. So when he went to the cross, he went representing us as one of us. When God allowed him to die on the cross, God was not declaring, my son deserves to die. No, Jesus endured death because we deserve to die. It was as our representative experiencing our punishment that we deserved, he took it for us. That's what scripture says. He is our representative. And the reason that's important to understand this passage is that that reality that Jesus is our representative did not end at the cross. As his body lay on Saturday, he continued to be our representative. And so on Sunday morning, 
when he was raised to new life, it wasn't just about him. It was about us as well. On that Sunday morning, God shouted into the world, I choose life. God the Father says, I choose life for my son, and I choose life for all that he represents. Every single person who has trusted in him, I choose life for them as well. I choose that sorrow will not have the final word, but joy will. On that moment when he resurrects Jesus, he is declaring definitively to the world that all who belong to him, he is for. And that means if you have placed your trust in Christ, God is for you. He is for you even despite the ways that we so miserably fail. One of the details I love about what the angel says, do you notice? Is he says, go tell the disciples and Peter. Why is he specifically mentioning first the disciples and then Peter? Because he is speaking of failures. Tell those people who failed Jesus, even Peter, who denied Jesus three times, Jesus wants to meet you because he is welcoming you back, because you are forgiven through him. And then when Jesus meets with them later on, he says, go tell everyone, tell the whole world that there is forgiveness for them if they turn to me. It doesn't matter what we have done, doesn't matter how deep our mistakes go, it doesn't matter how deeply corrupt we are within ourselves, we in Christ are forgiven. And God definitively declares, I am for you. Do you you understand that? If you are in Christ, God is thoroughly committed to your happiness. God smiles upon your delight. And if you are able to understand this, then then you will be convinced, as I am, that in the end, when understood rightly, life is not a tragedy. It's a comedy. You will understand that every moment that we enjoy something, whether it is small or whether it is big, has a significance beyond itself because it is a gift from God as God is trying to tell us again and again, I love you and I am for you and I delight in your joy. And even moments of suffering do not negate this. Do do not misunderstand me. I am not trying to trivialize just how hard life is. There can be moments of utter darkness. In the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, the book of Ruth, and there's one of the key figures is Naomi, and from the outset, she is experiencing utter darkness. She loses her husband. She loses her two sons. She is bereft of pretty much everyone, and in that moment, she has concluded God has left her. She says, the Lord is against me. She even wants to change her name. No longer shall my name be pleasant. My name should be bitter because that's what life is. Life is just about suffering. My life is a tragedy. She is so overcome by sadness that she concludes that that's all there is, but she is wrong. And as we move through this story of God's strange kindness, we see that even in those darkest moments, God is there working her good. And if you are concluding, if you are in a moment where things seem so dark that it seems to define everything, I want you to understand that you are wrong. That if you are in Christ, that means even in that moment, even in those darkest moments, God is working 
and he's going to bring about your good. Sorrow will not have the final word. See, see what, what the resurrection tells us is that we don't need to be cynical. We don't need to be jaded. It's common wisdom these days to basically say whenever good things happen, just kind of try to enjoy that for the moment and not think too much about it. You got to kind of defend yourselves and buck up because in the end it's all going to be not so great. That is wrong. Our life ultimately ends with joy, not with suffering. In the next week, I can guarantee at least a couple of things are going to be happening to you. Some, in some moments, some really bad things will take place. Maybe it's not really bad. Maybe it's just a small bad thing, like getting stuck in a traffic jam, or, or your t- shoelace breaking, or, or maybe it will be something much worse. And in that moment, there's going to be a part of you that says, why does this always happen to me? Why is my life always like this? Don't believe it. And there are going to be other times this week where something good will happen. Maybe something just as small and simple as a great cup of coffee. Or maybe something much, much bigger than that. And there's going to be a moment in that that a part of you might say, enjoy it while you can because this isn't really what life is about. Don't you believe it? I want to invite you to live in light of the resurrection to laugh at the days to come because you know you don't need to be afraid of them. To dance in response to moments of delight because you realize they are gifts from a God who loves you. To sing a song of hope even if sometimes you sing that with tears in your eyes. Because the reality is that sorrow will be swallowed up by joy. The reality is that life, when understood rightly, is a comedy. The reality is that for those who are in Christ, God is for you. For He is risen. He is risen indeed. And that is everything. Our, our, our tradition in our church is after we have spent time hearing God's word to spend some time in response to God's word in prayer. And what I'd like to invite you to do even right now is to spend some time in silent prayer. I, I don't know where you are. Maybe right now you're in a time of darkness or a time of joy. Either way, as we hear God speak to us, responding to him in prayer is the right response. Maybe it's an opportunity for you to confess or to ask God for help. Whatever it is, let's spend some time in silence and I will lead us in prayer in just a moment's time. Please pray with me. Lord, before your word um, 
speaking personally, I am both uh, encouraged and also confronted. Lord, you know what is true of me and probably of many of us, that often we do not live in light of the reality of the resurrection. We live as if our lives were tragedy. We live as those who, like these three women, do not trust in your promises. And so, Father, I and many of us confess our lack of faith. We ask for your forgiveness, knowing that you are a forgiving God. We ask that you would enable us to turn to you. And Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that there is joy beyond suffering. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you that you have chosen for life and joy for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the good news of the gospel that we have already heard before from 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Thanks be to God.